everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? I'm doing okay. I've been thinking about a possible career change lately, and do you know what job I think I'd be really good at? vocational guidance counselor to children's book characters. I think I would fucking kick ass at that. Mostly because it seems like a pretty easy job. I mean, most of your characters are going to fall into one of two categories. Either they already have a job, which they seem to have built a lot of their personality around, in which case you get to be like, hey, Bob, keep building. Hey, Mike, keep steam shoveling. Nice hustle. Or they're magical talking animals who don't seem to really need a job, and you know what? Good for them. I'm not going to try to convince Winnie the Pooh to go to trade school and become a plumber. I mean, the guy gets to sit around pantsless all day, eating honey and philosophizing, and still manages to pay the mortgage on a studio apartment in a desirable neighborhood like the Hundred Acre Woods. Heck, I should be taking advice from him. I think the biggest challenge in my career as a vocational guidance counselor to children's book characters is going to be somebody like Amelia Bedelia, who keeps trying different jobs and keeps fucking them all up. I mean, I don't know why anybody is hiring her to be their, I don't know, fucking chartered accountant at this point. If you check her references, then you know that if you ask her to cook the books, she's going to get out a fucking saute pan and that's going to be that. But I think I have the solution. You know what job I think Amelia Bedelia would be fucking great at? A genie. I think she would make a great genie. I mean, part of their job description is to fuck things up with their hyperliteralism. You say you want a cake, genie's gonna give you a fucking urinal cake. Or worse, a rice cake. But people know that going in. I mean, yeah, if you ask Amelia Bedelia as a genie to grant your wish, using a figure of speech that it had never occurred to you to question, she is going to fuck up your wish. But that's part of the job, and she's not going to do it maliciously the way most of these genies are. I mean, yeah, you're still going to have a million male deers that you need to take care of, but instead of some smoke-butted, pointy-bearded asshole laughing his ass off at you, when it's just a nice lady in a big hat who's trying her best, you're way more likely to be like, you know what, that's on me. Then you can concentrate on properly wording your next wish, or, if that was wish number three, you can move on to start figuring a way to rent out those deers as mobile coat racks. Which is not a sustainable business model, but come on, if you're gonna ask Amelia Bedelia as a genie for a million bucks, then you probably don't have what it takes to make it in the high-stakes world of coat rack rental. Which is the kind of advice I would give you if you came to me as a children's book character in need of vocational guidance. Just a little further ado before we ado this, Lisa and I are going to be out camping and will not have any internet access for the next week, so we won't be able to post an episode on the 21st. Sorry about that. But the good news is, this episode ran a bit longer than usual. 
Corey is out of town celebrating his birthday, so I asked my delightful guest co-host Megan Bob if they could fill in for him, and they agreed to, and I had such a good time talking to them that I kind of lost track of time. So seeing as this episode is about twice as long as a normal episode, it kind of evens out, and if you wanted to, you could just save half of it for next Wednesday. Anyway, on with the show. Without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by Devin Tuhey. I fear America's songbird I've broken, my rhymes too musical, rarely spoken. Hub's complaint I summoned with his curses, by means of my far too high-pitched verses. I'll have to find a new way to top this. Till that day, I'll enjoy his synopsis. Thanks, Devin. And just a quick note, instead of a normal Defenders issue, this week we're going to be looking at a Nighthawk story from an issue of Marvel Team-Up, which ties into some events that are going to come up pretty soon in the Defenders. So, Marvel Team-Up number 101, January 1981. To Judge a Nighthawk. Written by J.M. DeMatteis. Drotted by Jerry Bingham. Inked by Mike Esposito, lettered by Diana Albers, colored by Bob Sharon, and edited by Denny O'Neill. Defensive lineup Nighthawk, Spider-Man. And just another quick note this story takes place before Nighthawk's diurnal paralysis was mystically induced by the devil and his pals, the devil, the devil, and the devil, in Defenders number 93. Previously in the Defenders. An indeterminate but seemingly significant amount of comic book time ago, an evil scientist with a gorilla body and a human head scooped out Nighthawk, aka Kyle Richmond's brain, and dumped it into a punch bowl filled with chemicals. Bereft of a body, the billionaire do well bird enthusiast bowl bound brain took a slosh down memory lane and ruefully reminisced about the time when he accidentally killed his college girlfriend Mindy in a drunk driving accident. The affluent Davian aficionado eventually got back in his body and put thoughts of Mindy out of his once-again skull-encased mind. In more recent events, the government began investigating Nighthawk's company, Richmond Enterprises, for tax evasion and gross financial malfeasance. During the course of this investigation, Kyle's purportedly secret superhero identity was revealed to the public, who presumably were polite enough to pretend to be surprised. Gadzooks! Did Mindy actually die in that fatal car crash? If not, what has Mindy been up to since the time of her alleged demise? And what fiendish foe will necessitate a team-up between Nighthawk and Spider-Man? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so, of course not. Building robo-hippies and arming them with laser guitars? And Mindy and her laser guitar-wielding robo-hippies. Hooray! Kyle Richmond is holding a press conference at Richmond Enterprises' corporate office to assure his shareholders that despite recent allegations, everything at his company is back to normal. This message gets undercut somewhat when Kyle's dead ex-girlfriend Mindy shows up and starts beating the shit out of the bewildered billionaire and shouting, Why did you murder me, Kyle? Which seems like a fair question. 
When one of the photographers present, a mild-mannered young man named Peter Parker, attempts to intervene, Mindy picks him up over her head and tosses him out the skyscraper's top floor window. Well, shit. Fortunately, it turns out that Peter Parker is actually the web-slinging superhero Spider-Man, and he got thrown out the window on purpose so that he could change into his superhero duds without anyone seeing. A few seconds after Parker's abrupt defenestration, Spidey swings through the window and is like, Hey everybody, don't worry about my good friend Peter Parker. I rescued him before he fell to his death. The assembled reporters and businessmen are collectively like, Eh, whatever. Tough crowd. Putting aside his colleagues' indifference regarding his potential demise, Pete jumps over to where a still-stupefied Kyle is getting his ass kicked and uses his webs to rip Mindy's head off. Dang. Maybe Spidey isn't as good at compartmentalizing his hurt feelings as he likes to think he is. Fortunately, it turns out that Mindy was actually a robot, so that's a relief. Robo Mindy's decapitated head continues to berate Kyle for a little while, before eventually telling him that if he wants to know what all this is about, he should head upstate to his old alma mater, Greyburn University, and all will be revealed. Then she throws in one more, Why did you murder me, Kyle? for old time's sake, so Kyle punts her head through the window. A few seconds later, a severed robot head wearing a Spider-Man mask swings through the window and says, don't worry about my good friend Robo-Mindy's severed head. I rescued it before it fell to its death. Uh, okay, no, that doesn't happen, but can you imagine? Spider-Man turns to a visibly upset Kyle and is like, So, uh, I don't have no experience with girlfriends coming back from the dead. I mean, mine was a clone, not a robot, but still. Do you want to talk about it? Kyle is like, Actually, yeah, but... Let me get dressed up in my bird outfit first. And can we go on the rooftop too? I mean, it's kind of the traditional superhero brooding location, and I feel like doing some brooding. Spidey is like, sure thing, buddy. Meanwhile, somewhere upstate, a mysterious shadowy lady in a wheelchair yells at a picture of Mindy about how much she hates stupid-ass Kyle Richmond. I wonder who that could be. Back in the city, Spidey and Nighthawk convene on a rooftop for their little heart-to-heart. -heart. Kyle tells his arachnid amigo about how back when he was in college in the late 60s, he used to be a rich, irresponsible asshole. Yeah, Kyle. Used to be. He was dating a lady named Mindy, who he liked because she was poor. One night he got super drunk and took Mindy out for a drive in his fancy car. They ended up crashing into a tree, and Mindy died. Kyle's asshole dad hushed the whole thing up to keep his son out of jail, but Kyle has felt super shitty about it ever since. Spider-Man thinks to himself that he knows what Nighthawk is going through, because this reminds him of that time when he let a crook escape, and that crook went on to kill his uncle. Really, Pete? That's what this reminds you of? The fact that Kyle accidentally killed his girlfriend doesn't remind you of, oh, I don't know, maybe... The time you accidentally killed your girlfriend? Which is a thing that happened? Oh well, memory's a funny thing. Anyway, Kyle goes on to say that a few months ago, someone started mailing him old pictures of himself and Mindy together, along with threatening notes. He figures that Robo-Mindy's attack just might be related to those pictures. Gee, Kyle, you think? 
Spidey offers to tag along with Kyle as he heads up to the campus of Greyburn University to investigate. Kyle gratefully accepts the offer. The two heroes start respectively flying and web-swinging their way north. Once they get a little ways out of the city, they end up passing over the heads of a couple of young ladies named Renee and Karen who are out camping in the woods and drinking wine. Karen looks up and sees a pair of figures streaking through the sky and immediately decides to stop drinking and start listening to Devo. Um, okay? I mean, you do live in a world where a certain segment of the population can fly, so I wouldn't necessarily start questioning my life choices just because I saw evidence of that. But, on the other hand, Devo's pretty great, so carry on. A little while later, Nighthawk and Spider-Man arrive on campus. They're surprised to see it's bustling with activity, because the college has been closed for nearly a decade. They're even more surprised when they notice that the students who are milling around on the quad are all dressed as though it were still the late 60s. Some are dressed as hippies, playing acoustic guitars and carrying picket signs, hooray, while others are dressed like preppy jocks and are drinking cans of beer while they prepare to perform lewd acts on one another. When the students see the two costumed heroes, Jock and Hippie alike turn in unison and attack. It turns out all those students are robots! The cans of beer the Robo-Jocks were drinking are explosive devices, the Robo-Hippie's picket signs are made out of razor-sharp metal, and the guitars fire laser bolts! Hooray! Kyle and Pete do their best to defend themselves against their unconventional attackers, but they are eventually overwhelmed when the robo-hippies and robo-jocks are joined by a deployment of mechanized riot cops who lob gas grenades into the midst of the crowd. As their consciousness fades, the last thing our heroes see is the robo-cops closing in on them. Okay, just to be clear, by robo-cops, I mean robotic cops, not actual robo-cop. I mean... None of these guys are eating baby food, shooting anyone in the dick, or teaming up with Sting to face off against the Four Horsemen at a WCW pay-per-view, so I'm pretty sure they aren't that RoboCop. I'm also pretty sure they probably aren't the RoboCop from my unfinished screenplay about a police officer who drinks too much Robitussin, but I'm less certain about that. When our perplexed protagonists finally wake up from their gas-induced slumber, they find that they've been chained up. Spider-Man is surrounded by a cadre of heavily armed nostalgia bots, but much to Nighthawk's distress, he finds that his own surroundings are horrifyingly familiar. The adult avian-themed adventurer's arms and legs have been bound, and he has been placed in the driver's seat of the very sports car he was driving the night Mindy died. Sputtering in disbelief, Kyle whips his head around, searching for some possible explanation for this unwelcome blast from the past. He soon finds one. Next to the vehicle is an angry woman in a wheelchair. It's Mindy. I mean, I put the dun-dun-dun there, because it's a fun sound effect, but I think we all saw this coming. And only partly because I told you it was. Mindy gloats that Kyle is finally going to pay for the suffering he caused her. Kyle is like, what the fuck? Mindy takes this as an invitation to start shoveling some much-needed exposition into the narrative furnace and provides the following information. Back in the day, Mindy was totally in love with Kyle. But after the car accident, that love turned to hate. She wasn't killed in the drunken car crash, but she was paralyzed from the waist down and was understandably pissed off about it. 
During her convalescence, she was visited in the hospital by Kyle's rich asshole of a dad. The elder Richmond offered her a big payoff if she would change her name and move away so that he could pretend she was dead and use Kyle's guilt about killing her to manipulate him into being a more agreeable son. Mindy accepted Richmond's offer and went along with the plan, but only so that she could use the money to start plotting her revenge against Kyle for the paralysis his irresponsibility had caused. She invested wisely and soon amassed a great fortune. She used her newfound wealth to buy a bunch of robots from various supervillains. Then, when she learned that her old college had gone out of business, she bought the campus and dressed up the robots in the fashion of her youth. She found the wreckage of the vehicle whose destruction had robbed her of the use of her legs and had it painstakingly restored to its original condition. Well, nearly its original condition. She did make a few modifications. See, in 1968, the car wasn't hooked up to a remote control that would send it speeding into a tree at 90 miles per hour with the push of a button. Back then, that had to be done manually by a drunken Kyle. Ain't progress grand. Anyway, that more or less brings us up to speed. And speaking of speed, when Mindy concludes her little exposition dump, she pushes the button on that aforementioned remote control and sends Kyle's vehicle speeding towards a copse of trees a short distance away. When he sees the car zoom off, Spidey takes advantage of the momentary distraction and breaks free from his shackles. He starts using the proportional strength and powers of a spider to beat the shit out of nearby hippie bots. Meanwhile, Nighthawk uses the proportional strength and powers of a groggy entitled rich guy to struggle uselessly against the chains, securing him to the deathmobile. As he punches the head off a robo-hippie, Spidey is like, Mindy, I think if you had ever actually loved Kyle, you probably wouldn't murder him. I bet you were only dating him in the first place because he was rich. Harsh. I mean, I can't think of another reason to date Kyle either, but... It's rude to say that while he's still in earshot and is about to die. Maybe people skills like this are the reason why nobody was more upset when they thought you got defenestrated. Perhaps invigorated by indignation at his friend's words, Nighthawk finally manages to free himself and launches skyward from the car mere seconds before it slams headlong into a tree. Mindy also objects to Spider-Man's insinuation. She angrily declares that she did indeed once love Kyle with such fervor that she momentarily overcomes her spinal injury. She briefly rises to her feet as she pushes another button on the remote control that sends out a bolt of electricity which zaps the shit out of Spider-Man. Kyle swoops down and catches Mindy in his arms just before she collapses to the ground. He gently guides her finger away from the button that had been electrocuting Spidey. Mindy's like, Sorry about almost murdering you. Kyle is like, likewise. Nobody seems particularly sorry about almost killing Spider-Man, but maybe he and a robo-hippie share a moment off-panel that I just missed. Kyle and Spidey round up all the robots and hand them over to Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., because I guess donating murder bots designed to infiltrate college campuses to a shadowy government agency with no oversight is the kind of thing that passes for heroism in 1981. Mindy is shipped off to an institution in New England that promises to sane her up real good. Spider-Man and Kyle bid each other a fond farewell, promising to guest star in one another's respective ongoing titles real soon. The end. Then, we get a backup story. Of sorts. Don't let the sun come 
up on me. Written by Mike Barr, drotted by Steve Ditko, inked by Steve Ditko, lettered by Gene Simak, colored by Bob Sharon, and edited by Denny O'Neill. Defensive lineup! Nighthawk! It is just before dawn on the night after the events at Greyburn. Nighthawk is flying around in the air above New York City thinking about how he isn't very good at being a superhero. He decides to cheer himself up by shooting his laser guns at a random building. Damn it, Kyle! Turns out there was a little girl who was standing near that building, and the laser blasts weakened the structure enough that a wall's about to collapse on her and crush her to death. Shitty. Kyle swoops down and is like, Don't worry, I'll rescue you from me! What a hero. Since it's still technically nighttime, Kyle is able to use his remarkable ability of having the strength of two strong men at nighttime to prop up the wall. He's like, Okay, I can hold this wall up for a little while. Now get out of here! The girl is like, Yeah, one problem with that? I can't walk. See, I was out practicing using my crutches when some asshole shot this building and made it start falling on me. Now I can't even reach my crutches, and if you move to try to help me, this wall is going to crush me. Kyle's like, well, shit. Uh, okay, here's an idea. You know how you can't move right now because you have a disability? The girl is like, yes, yes, I do know that. Kyle is like, well, try to move anyway. The kid's like, seriously? Kyle's like, yeah. She tries to move, she can't. Kyle's like, okay, new plan, try harder. She tries harder. No dice. By now the sun is about to rise, at which point Kyle will only have the strength of one strong man and will no longer be able to hold up the wall. He's like, okay kid, try to move again, but this time try even harder. Like, as hard as you can. She tries her hardest and at the last minute manages to crawl out of the way just before the wall collapses on Kyle. The girl is like, Oh no! That asshole who yelled my disability away must have died when that building he shot for no reason fell on him. Bummer. But just then, Nighthawk pushes his way free from the rubble and is like, Nah, my fancy suit protected me. I'm fine. Bye! And with that, he flies away. The end. Well, I think we all learned a valuable lesson from this story. Kyle Richmond fucking sucks. And my good-for-many-things brother, Corey, is sullenly nursing a cup of coffee to celebrate the anniversary of his birth <laughs> somewhere in another dimension. Luckily, in his stead, I am joined by a brilliant podcaster, writer, and educator, mm. and more importantly, friend, Aww. the good-for-ever-so-many-things, Megan Bob. Megan Bob, thanks for joining us. Hi, Hop. Hey, how's it going? Oh, boy. I read a comic. It was a whole thing. I can't believe it. How did it treat you? Ah, uh, better in many ways than I anticipated, because you did say Nighthawk was going to be in it. Mm. But also, 
I it was like I opened a portal to somebody's brain. I guess the, the writer's brain. I have questions about whose brain it was. And now I want to interview them and know what they were going through because it's it's got some stuff in it. It has a lot of stuff in it. I am forced to go with the uh, Lamort Dother thing <laughs> and try to make up some of my own answers to those questions. See, I have a fucking degree. I I paid actual human dollars to get a degree in literature, two of them, and like this is still I have no answers. I although I do have a red string on a corkboard theory. Mm, I'm looking forward to hearing that theory. So going into this comic book, how familiar were you with the two leads, Nighthawk and Spider-Man? Okay, one you pronounce it the correct way. It is Spider-Man, as though he is a CPA, John Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. So Nighthawk, I know only through your podcast. And so I was like, this rich fuck. <laughs> I'm gratified to hear that my poisoning of the well for that particular character has gone as planned. And I feel, I'd say, only 70% of that now. Okay. Spider-Man, I had Never seen a single Spider-Man film, nor been exposed to any Spider-Man content, not the animated shows, not anything, until Mm -hmm. I watched the one that everybody loves. Oh, God, what's it called? Into the, not Into the Dark, Into the Spider-Verse. Into the Spider-Verse? There you go. That is the only Spider-Man I have ever seen. Oh, except, okay, I do know about the Julie Taymor Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark and the fact that the song Radioactive by Imagine Dragons was they wrote placeholder music for the musical thinking that U2 was going to do the music for it and so that song was a placeholder song that U2 was going to come in and like do a real thing but Radioactive is I believe about Spider-Man. See I didn't know any of that. Well I just happened to know about it because that musical was highly cursed and multiple people were severely injured. Because you can't do web-slinging on a stage. Well, they could do Peter Pan stuff. Like, couldn't they just get Mary Martin or Sandy (laughs) Duncan to be Spider-Man? I don't know what went wrong. I guess they tried to do some more advanced... I mean, Peter Pan flies like a person would fly. Do you know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. belly down, arms out, or arms back. But that's it. Right. Whereas Spider-Man does whatever a spider can. Yes. And actors cannot necessarily do whatever a spider can. No, certainly not within the limits of a fly system in a theater. Good to know. Well, are you ready to jump into this comic book and try to sort out our thoughts on it? I am so ready. All right. So the comic is broken up into two separate stories. The first one, To Judge a Nighthawk. Let's start on that before we move into... Don't let the sun come up on me. Mm, Very clever. So what did you think just overall of To Judge a Nighthawk? I'm going to bust out my red string already. Okay. Is this about Ted Kennedy? Is this about Chappaquiddick? Oh, shit. That had honestly not occurred to me. I know that story got a lot of traction around the 1980 election, which is, I think, around when this comic would have come out. I know that Ted Kennedy was doing his presidential run at the time, and I was looking at, okay, January, so this would have been being written maybe around the time of the convention? 
That would actually make a fair amount of sense. I didn't really put that together. I know the events that take place were described, the fatal car accident, in an earlier, I think it was Defenders number 33 Mm. that was written by Steve Gerber in the mid-70s. Okay. So it would actually make sense if just that story was kind of in the zeitgeist right then. And then DeMatteis was like, hey, we can do a story about that because we have a parallel story that's already been described. Let's elaborate on that some. Yeah, it just felt so weird to have this story be so mirroring that if that was not what the intention was but i mean i don't know parallel evolution or whatever no honestly that just hadn't occurred to me that is probably it was at least partly inspired by it yes do i get extra credit on this quiz you get five cory points oh my god you have no idea how exciting that is to me I don't know what I'm going to do with it. Can I get like one of those slap bracelets if I get enough points? Well, they're only redeemable within the park. Oh, I have to get so many Corey points before I can get any prizes. It's true. But uh, I I think, let's see, five. You're probably going to want to save up more than that. Right now, you're on to paper yo-yo territory. Oh, fuck. Yeah, because I know that I have to then redeem them for hub tokens, right? Yeah, it's like there's a complicated exchange program. <laughs> Is it worse than the one in Harry Potter? Well, it's less overtly racist. <laughs> oh, well, thank God for that. But the exchange rate, I'm going to have to look some of it up. Okay. So, yeah, this is a weird story, and it builds off of another weird story, which, as I said, was written by Steve Gerber in the mid-70s during his Defenders run and took place during a flashback when Kyle was a brain sitting in a punch bowl. Oh, yeah, we're re-listening right now, and we just passed the the point when Steve is very helpfully going like, I don't know, man, reality. Yeah, so that's where the seeds for this story are planted. And it was an odd story at the time in that it was, I think, supposed to create more pathos for Kyle that... He murdered somebody and feels bad about it. I guess not technically murder, but manslaughtered. Yeah. And never faced any legal repercussions. And Mm -hmm. it was never a completely comfortable story. The idea that this character was introduced and then, although the term didn't exist at the time, kind of instantly retro-fridged to have motivated Kyle, or actually kind of failed to have motivated him. But either way, her life and death were just kind of treated like a plot point in his arc. But then this story does kind of flesh it out and actually focuses a little bit more on Mindy's story and makes her a character, which I appreciated. And also there was just a lot of really weird shit in it, which I also appreciated. Yeah, I definitely liked the weird shit. The weird shit was very pleasing, but also themes. I feel like this thing has themes. Oh, geez, I'm terrible at those. What themes did you see it having? Okay, this is my rough draft sketch of what this paper is going to be about. Something, something, the 60s, something, something, the past is a foreign country, something, something, Mm. memory is, I don't know, lives on in our hearts. It's very powerful, something. Look, this paper isn't due for another three days and you cannot make me write it right now. Tough but fair. Those seem like certainly plausible themes. I think that is part of it, probably. The general idea of a character being stuck in the past is something that 
J.M. DeMatteis is more recently in stories that we've studied, explored with the character Sunshine, the hippie who is stuck in the late 60s. Mm. And I think the idea of being stuck in previous decades was more of a thing and specifically stuck in the 60s mm-hmm. um, may have been informed by some aspects that I do know of J.M. DeMatteis's career. Uh, he had been a music review critic for Rolling Stone. Oh, wow. And he decided to stop doing that. He wrote a negative review of a 1980 Grateful Dead album uh-huh. that had a lot of Grateful Dead fans very upset at him. And it actually made him want to stop being a critic. Uh, because he basically said, I only really want to write criticism of things that I like right now, because if I'm just a guy with an opinion, who gives a fuck? But once I write it down, it becomes real in a way that I'm not sure I want it to be real. And people can like what they like, and I don't want to be a part of impeding that. I like him. He sounds like a nice guy. I think so. He has written some very, very odd things. And I think overall, he is a very good writer. He was one of the writers behind the Justice League International title. He was the scripter for that. The time when he was working on the book is also sometimes known as the Wahaha era. Really? Because that was the way laughter was spelled out phonetically, and there was a lot of laughter in those books. That's charming. It is. And one of the things that that series did, which there is the promise of in the Defenders, but I don't think it is ever fully realized in the same way, is it really does look at superhero comics as a workplace comedy. (gasps) Fuck yes. And that is something that he did very, very well with his scripting. So that's one thing I really like about him as a writer. I like a lot of what he's done in the Defender since he took over the title. And this particular comic book came out like the month before he took over as the writer for the Defenders. So it's in a way setting the groundwork for the character of Nighthawk that he wants to write. Mm, Okay. But yeah, I think maybe the criticism from Grateful Dead fans did perhaps subconsciously make him be like, man, you shouldn't be stuck in the 60s, guys. I don't know if I've ever heard a Grateful Dead song. I think I've mentioned it on the show before, but I got into the Grateful Dead accidentally uh, because I thought they were going to be a metal band. (laughs) Oh, wow. How long did that period last? Well, here's the thing. It was middle school and my dad worked at the high school and he brought home a cool looking shirt from the lost and found. And I was like, dude, that's got skeletons on it. That looks tough as shit. I'm going to wear that because I want the metal kids to think that I'm cool. And I wore it and the metal kids didn't think that I was cool. (gasps) And I was like, what? This looks like a cool metal band. And then I listened to a grateful dead song and I was like, Oh no, (laughs) this isn't metal at all. Oh no. But I was wearing the shirt, so I decided I had to kind of like it. And so I stuck with that for a little while. Well, I didn't want to be a poser. (laughs) Fair enough. So I retroactively started liking it because it was decided that I was going to. And in that context, they had a lot of songs that I enjoyed. I can tell you something about the Grateful Dead from the side of academia. Oh, yes? I attend a regional conference, let's be clear, not a national conference. I don't have the kind of budget for that. But a regional conference 
for the Pop Culture and American Studies Association. And there are panels on all kinds of things. There's like a whole slew of panels on Supernatural and all of these Mm. other things. One chunk of the panels is all Grateful Dead studies. Wow. And there are a ton of people who come and deliver their papers and there are Grateful Dead kind of academics. And that's what they study. And there is this weird current among everyone else at the conference that all of us secretly wish we were cool enough to go to those fucking panels and hang out with the Grateful Dead academics, but no one is brave enough. (laughs) But if you go to one, it's just like weed smoke kind of wafting out of this very plush conference room. And everybody's like, oh, man, I want to go. But no one wants to go because they're afraid that the Grateful Dead academics are going to be like, no, nah, man, get out. Oh, You're not a serious deadhead, and, which they probably would never do. They'd probably be very chill about it. But I think all of us are too afraid. Well, all those pictures of skeletons can be very frightening. But also, that's adorable. <laughs> I know. All academics are like eight years old. <laughs> So I think some of those very intimidating Grateful Dead fans may have been part of Demetrius's inspiration to write about people who felt like they were unable to move on from the 60s. Um, mm. But I also feel like back in the 80s, there was more of a push to and an interest in defining and to an extent defining yourself by the zeitgeist of different decades specifically. Like we see that in this comic with the two women who are out camping in the woods. Yes. That she's like, Oh, it's time for us to put away our acoustic guitar and listen to the Beatles because the seventies is over. Now we need to make sure that we all know it's the eighties. I'm going to drink Perrier and listen to Devo. And it's just so specific. And that it is so early on in the decade. This is January of 81. The decade has really just started and they're already interested in and kind of able to identify some of the markers of that decade. And I just feel like that kind of doesn't happen anymore. I remember it happening with the 90s, like even very, very early in the decade. Oh, I'm a sensitive 90s kind of guy Mm. was a phrase that I remember hearing. I mean, it wasn't like as soon as you flipped the calendar, there was instantly a clear picture of what the 90s was going to be. But within a few years of the 90s, there were like certain cultural markers that were recognized by society as, oh, this is a 90s thing. This is at least one way that we're going to define this era. And I haven't really felt that since the start of the 90s. Well, the 2000s had butterfly clips okay and there was a lot of dr pepper lip smackers oh now i am giving you a perspective on the 2000s of a well you know what that might even be the 90 late 90s as well but like the perspective of relatively speaking a child so i can't give you anything that would have been like contemporary with your experiences from the 2000s i i'm like in sync was a thing i think no god that was the 90s too shit yeah nope i know nothing never mind i lied to you hub i'm sorry 
I think of the aughts as being maybe the torque decade. Because <laughs> that's when that movie came decade. out. That's how oh, I man. define it. And like, there is like an aesthetic to that movie that I, I can look at and be like, okay, that's early 2000s. But I don't think that was considered a cultural marker at the time or now by anyone who isn't me. I think that the first Iron Man movie came out in early 2000s. I think that was 2008, maybe? What? I thought it was early. Ah, uh, fuck. I don't know anything about time. God damn you, pandemic. You've unglued all of it. Well, I think that's part of it, but I think also it's harder to define a decade if you don't have a solid name that everyone can agree on for the decade. I thought the aughts was what everyone should call it, and I, I will die on that hill. I agree that people should, but I don't know that it is generally referred to that way. Mm, Certainly true. not unanimously, in the same way that 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s? And I've never heard it called the teens, you know? Because it's not all teen either, because you get the 11, 12 in there too. Mm. So I wonder to what extent that does affect that. I'm going to look up when Iron Man came out too. Yeah, because I want to know. 2008. Oh, because I was going to say maybe this next chunk of time is going to be referred to as like, I don't know, the Marvels. Because it defined everything about media in such a big, profound way. Not necessarily what everybody was into, although to some extent, if you hadn't watched one, you were an outlier. Hmm. I don't know. Now we're getting into cultural theory and sociology. That's okay with me. I'll dabble <laughs> in things that I don't understand at all. I know, if same. If I didn't, I would never talk about anything. <laughs> but... It probably isn't a terrible idea for us to veer back to <laughs> a specific thing that we don't necessarily understand, like something from this comic book. Okay, great. These stink lines of distress on page two. Okay. I had never seen these lines, these wavy lines around Peter Parker used to indicate distress I only associate the wavy line with a stink line and was going, is this how distress is indicated in the comics? Bob, that is his spidey sense. What? You know how he can do whatever a spider can? It... Well, part of what a spider can do is sense somehow magically whenever he is in danger. Oh, okay. So that is the visual indicator of his spidey sense tingling. I've never seen it before. It's so cute. Yeah, it doesn't necessarily mean that his head doesn't stink, mm. but that is not what it is attempting to show. It would make sense if maybe he didn't smell the best, seeing as how his fellow journalists hold him in such low regard that it is a moment of levity when he is thrown out a window. I know. I was like, Jesus. I mean, I know that the press can be cruel, but I didn't think you would turn on one of your own kind. Yeah, it's not comic relief when he dies. He's not Polonius. Come on. <laughs> yeah. With great power comes great responsibility is much better advice than to thine own self be true. <laughs> Shots fired on Billy. That's right. Shakespeare, I've got some notes. Okay, I am so pleased to know that that's what the Spidey Sense looks like. I completely thought that the Spidey Sense meant that spiders could predict the future. I mean, we don't know that they can't. Yeah, you know what? C coming out here first. Spiders, 
They know the future. Makes you wonder why that one motherfucker bothered climbing that water spout if he knew the rain was going to come down. <laughs> well, okay. A second question. Is Spider-Man ripped? Because he looked very swole in that panel whenever he comes back in his Spider-Man getup. Oh, yeah, he totally is. I didn't know that. Yeah, that dude is shredded like lettuce. But no, he's supposed to be a, like a, a gentle dweeb. Well, he was, but once he got spider powers, spiders, I mean, they've got eight arms. That's one pack per arm. He's got an eight pack now. There's nothing he can do about it. But I've never seen a jacked spider. I don't think I've ever seen a spider that wasn't jacked. Sometimes whenever they flick a leg, they're just like flexing. It's like, hey, check this out. You're like, mm -hmm. oh, God. That's why you have to kill them, because you're like, look, only I am allowed to be this strong in the household. Exactly. Otherwise, they'll just they'll they'll steal your partner <laughs> and also bully you in the workplace. God, I feel like I'm learning so much about Spider-Man. There's a lot to learn. I have been led to believe that he's quite popular. That's what I've heard. Yeah. He's also interesting because in the rest of the superhero community, he is generally depicted as being younger than most of the heroes. Uh, he's not a teenager anymore, but when he was first starting out, he was a teenager at the time when most of the other Marvel heroes were grown-ups. So mm -hmm. there's a sliding timeline. So he's probably early 20s when the rest of the heroes are early 30s. I okay. think is the stopping point of most characters aging in mm -hmm. comic books. That's a pity. I want the Golden Girls, but with superpowers. I would watch that. Right. I just want to see like postmenopausal women punching Dr. Doom. Why is no one giving me this? I have money. I mean, not a lot, but I've got like, I've got 20 bucks. Okay. Which superpower do you think each golden girl would have? Oh, fuck. I'm going to get it wrong. Okay, hold on. Let's limit it. Let's say they each get a Fantastic Four power. So there's, a, there's stretching, okay. being made out of rocks, <laughs> invisibility, and being on fire. Okay. Um... Which it took me way too fucking long to realize that those powers relate to the four elements. Oh my god. Wait, what the fuck element is stretching? Uh, water. Uh, fluidity. Mm. Can assume any shape. All right. That's Blanche, because uh, sex reasons. Gotcha. I mean, Blanche is a practical woman. I'm going to take one. I think that Sophia would be the human torch because she's so fiery. Ooh, she's so feisty. She is. She And also good with burns. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, this is tough. I know. I think Dorothy is, like, she's the foundation. She's, yes. like, strong and dependable. She's the foundation that the Golden Girls are built upon. So I think she's the thing. And I can also hear her saying it's clobber in time. Oh, God, yeah. And just as, like, a direct pun, you get the, like, Rose. I don't think of her as being invisible, but she is, like, the most discreet amongst them, and she is kind of an airhead. I was gonna say airhead, too! Yeah, so, there, we've just cast it. Okay, Marvel, give us... How much do you want to write this? Ooh, uh, you know, it's a passion project, so I do it on the cheap. Let's say $45,000. Okay, $45,000. 
each. Each. Oh, each. Okay, okay. $45,000, and we will write you the first season of Golden Girls, but with superpowers. Yeah, hit us up, Marvel. My phone is not ringing yet, and I am shocked. Well, I've got mine off for the podcast <laughs> right now. I assume that I've, I'll have a lot of messages okay, when we yeah. finish recording. You know what? That's a good point, because I also have mine off. And you're right. I thought maybe they had some sort of like signal jammer. that They were like, no, give us that fucking idea right now. Uh, see, I thought you were saying you thought they had some kind of a signal, like a bat signal-like thing, but it, that's just shaped like the number 45K, that they just flash into the air whenever they need us to write something. You know, Marvel, if you want to do that, I would consider being on call. Well, I just want to let you know, though, that the money for that signal, that's not coming out of our per diem. That's on you, Marvel. Yeah, absolutely. And I am very expensive to keep around. Likewise. Okay, single tier Kyle, page four. Are men allowed to cry in comics? Is that a thing? Because in the 80s, I would say men are never allowed to cry except in like boardrooms after a bunch of cocaine. Here's the thing. Men are allowed to cry in comic books, Bob. Don't be so stuck in the old ways. Oh, that's as exciting. But... It can only be one single tear, oh, one single what? manly tear. That's why the phrase single manly tear exists. Is mm, that really come from comics? Probably not. Okay. <laughs> All right. I, man, I thought I had a nugget of knowledge I could spring on people. It's a nugget of something. But yeah, as near as I can tell, the single manly tear rolling down the cheek is reserved for manly men in comic books and a... Italian-American dressed up as a Native American <laughs> watching litter in a commercial. Those are the two people that can do single manly tears. Have you ever seen a man in a comic cry more than that? Not a hero. Really? I probably have. <laughs> but, but it's not the usual. Okay. Because, like, look, I just really I want to hold Martian Manhunter while he cries. <laughs> And you're breaking this illusion for me. Oh, well, that rule only applies to Marvel characters. And also, I just made it up. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right, fair enough. All right. When the comic book opens, we see that Kyle Richmond is holding a big press conference. And I think that's some of the housekeeping that DeMatteis is doing in this issue, is trying to clarify that Nighthawk no longer has a secret identity. This is all public knowledge. He inherited a storyline that Kyle was dealing with some big legal problems. And so this is him holding a press conference about that and kind of clarifying some of the deal with that. What's okay. weird about this particular press conference is, did you notice the logo for Richmond Enterprises? I am now. And why did I think it was Richmond Industries in my head? I kind of did, too. Maybe it's both. He probably owned. That's like it's a conglomerate. There's probably a bunch of different shell corporations. There's probably <laughs> Richmond Industries, too. But this one really looks like it says P.E. And I was like, is Public Enemy going to show up? Because I would love it if they did. But the other thing that struck me about that logo is it's got the Nighthawk symbol right on it. So one of two things is happening. 
either. Kyle is so bad at having a secret identity that he just went ahead and put his superhero logo on his company's stationery mm -hmm. and has been doing that for years. Or after it became public knowledge as part of a huge scandal that could cost him his company and they're being sued for all kinds of financial malfeasance and tax evasion, he decided that is the time to rebrand his entire company <laughs> around him personally, who is the person who is at the center of all of these allegations. Okay, theory number three. This was something that was thought up a long time ago by the guys in like design or whatever. And then that's where he took his inspiration from. It was like, yeah, uh, that sounds great. I'm going to dress okay. like this doof. That actually makes a fair amount of sense that he was just like, he saw the corporate logo and was like, oh, that looks cool. I'll go with that. Uh, yeah. Like he didn't even have the, the vision to create his own look. He was just like, well, it's already there. I'll do that. Tough, but fair. Yeah, he, he doesn't strike me as a guy to go for extra credit if he's already getting an A. Oh, boy, he does not. Okay, that makes sense. Here's something that didn't necessarily make sense, but I was happy to see. Okay. And you have an academic background. Maybe you can <laughs> shed some light on this. It's been a long time since I've been on a college campus. Uh-huh. Do robo-hippies and robo-frat boys generally get along pretty well? I wonder. Because I don't know if they're all best friends, but there are two things that it seems like robo-hippies and robo-frat boys definitely agree on. One is that killing Kyle Richmond is a really good idea, and B, they just kind of want to hang out on the quad and blow each other. Yes! Oh my god! I was like... I called it, like, double blowjobs is what I called that fucking panel. Because I was like... Well, rude to come in and, like, interrupt this fucking public blowjob session that's just happening freely in the quad. I love the idea that they're like, yeah, I mean, we're robots, but we're still college students. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> we're gonna hang out on the quad and give each other robo blowjobs. <laughs> oh, man. I'm so, I'm so glad that we're on the same page about these <laughs> robo blowjobs. Well, what else is it going to... I'm like, that is clearly what is happening. They're, like, maybe getting ready for the protest, but they're not protesting yet. But, yeah, there's the two jocks, and one of them is, like, eye-level, possibly pulling down the other one's zipper. I think that's a cigarette, but, like, it's a pre-blowjob cigarette. Mm, dangerous cigarette placement, regardless, but maybe robo-anatomy is different than <laughs> I like to think of it. Also, nice little uh, touch... The robo-jocks are drinking what appear to be very short cans of beer. Yeah, they are very tiny. They look like they're blotto on them, but I was wondering if maybe those are cans of oil. Ooh, I like this. I like this theory a lot. Did oil used to come in aluminum cans? Probably. <laughs> That's the level of research we do here at Tighten Up the Defense. Oh, man, I love this. But then you see the other, the robo-hippies. The super buff black guy is about to give the hippie and the windbreaker a blowjob, too. So, I mean, good for these robo-hippies and robo-jocks. Just... I know. And you know what? Gay robot representation. There's not nearly enough of that. I know. And in the 80s of all things, I'm, I'm very proud. You know what? Okay. Big question about how comics work. 
Okay. Does this work like garden plots? Did somebody say, hey guys, wouldn't it be really cool if there was like these robots and they had flaming guitars? Or was it a case of the writer was like, all right, I'm just going to write this and then the artist can do whatever they fucking want as far as depicting this and how they think this looks? It really depends on the creative team. Okay. It can vary so much. With this particular creative team, I don't know that there was the rapport yet between Jerry Bingham and J.M. DeMatteis that they could have been using the traditional Marvel method, and I'm doing that in air quotes, which will actually come up when we discuss the second story in here. But the way that that would work would be that the artist would basically draw the whole thing, maybe after a brief discussion with the writer about what the general plot was, but oftentimes not even that. The artist would just draw the whole thing, plot out the whole thing, and then the writer's job was to just go in and fill in the dialogue. But what if what they drew doesn't make any sense? Well, then you would get early 90s X-Men comics, where they would look cool, but then you would have the writer really writing around the art to try to make it make sense. When that's the method that's being used to create a comic book, then essentially the artist pretty much is the writer, or at least the co-writer. They're just not getting paid for it. And if you have a good artist that is really good at pacing and plot and putting those elements together, it makes the writer's job a lot easier, which is why Stanley was able to write like six titles a month out at a couple of points. Because he was working with artists like Steve Ditko and Jack Kirby, who did a lot of the work for him. Ah. Um, With this particular creative team, and it's far more standard, it's somewhere in the middle. Either the artist will be working with a full script and will give a lot of art direction in terms of, here's what I want this panel to look like, here's what I want this panel to look like, or there can be like, here's what I want to have happen on this page, and here's the dialogue. It really, really depends. Okay, but what if the bubble is too small? The artist isn't usually the person who draws in the bubble. That's usually the letterer. Oh, so there's more art that we're not getting to see. Yeah. (gasps) And sometimes artists will get understandably annoyed when a writer will put a ton of dialogue and will cover up some beautiful artwork that they did. Yeah. uh, Because they thought there was only X amount of words that were necessary for that page. Mm, I'm Um, learning so much. And some of it's probably true. Yay! But yeah, I don't know what the particular relationship between this creative team was. I want to back up for one second and ask, what the fuck? How does movement work whenever it comes to comics? Let's focus particularly on Spider-Man. Okay. On the cover, he is flying crotch first at us, the reader. And I'm all for this. But then later on, Page six, he's flying butt first alongside Kyle. Is this just carefree movement for Spider-Man part of indicating that, is this yet another thing spiders can do? Partly. I think part of the movement for Spider-Man is that it's a very fluid, very gymnastic movement and also sometimes seems like he's a little bit out of control. So you can put him in a ton of different positions, and a lot of them would be anatomically unfeasible for most people. 
Todd McFarlane was one of the artists who was really big into just really contorting him all the time in a lot of different ways that didn't make a ton of sense, but looked cool. Oh. But even before that, Spider-Man is a character who, I mentioned Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko. Jack Kirby was the primary artist behind the Fantastic Four and a ton of other comic books, but he had a very dynamic style and his characters just seemed to be like almost vibrating with tension and energy. It looked like they might explode at any minute. Everybody just kind of felt like they were just like super tense and yelling all the time. And it's (laughs) fucking awesome. Steve Ditko didn't have really the same dynamism, but he drew characters who moved with a lot of fluidity. And he did a fluidity of motion that really was pretty unparalleled for other illustrators and paved the way for certain characters and the way that they looked. He tended to have lither, less blocky, big, muscly guys. So like, yeah, Spider-Man's ripped, but he's ripped like a swimmer, not like a bodybuilder. Whereas most superhero comics, especially like this got exacerbated towards the 90s, but would just be like, super ripped and look just like big and muscly and that kind of strong. Dorito men. Yes, shaped like a Dorito. (laughs) And also very extreme. The characters that Ditko created, or co-created, depending on your perspective on it, were, for Marvel anyway, Spider-Man and Doctor Strange. Oh. And so you'll see both of them just tend to be like more lithe and less like blocky, muscly guys. And then that formula continued with him with other characters he created for other companies. Uh, He also created the Blue Beetle and Hawk and Dove, (laughs) which his perspective on those characters, if you read the early Hawk and Dove stuff, it is very clear that it's not even a both sides thing. It's no, Hawk is right. Dove is wrong. Dove is a coward. He's wrong. And hippies are stupid. Wow. Steve Ditko was a man of very strong convictions. Who is the narrator? Is the narrator the writer? Is the narrator some omniscient same character across all comics that like Marvel publishes? Is the narrator the characters in the comic? Who is this person? Changes from comic to comic, uh, at this point, it was fairly standard to just have an omniscient third-person narrator. Is it the same omniscient narrator? It's not the same omniscient narrator across the boards, because you get writers who have, like Chris Claremont, has a very angry (laughs) omniscient narrator who seems to specifically dislike the characters (gasps) and be yelling at them a lot of the time. Oh, that sounds delightful. It absolutely is. There's a lot of like, you thought this, didn't you? But you were wrong, dead wrong. And then, you know, maybe they die or something. Oh, I was going to say, but then the narrator realizes how much they love the character. Oh, wow, that is some next-level fan fiction. <laughs> and then, Meta fan fiction between the narrator and one of their characters? Yes! Why is no one doing that? I want to see the narrator self-embody because they want to touch, I don't know, Cyclops' butt that much. 
I never think of Cyclops having much of a butt, but I guess it depends on the artist. He was the first X-Men I thought of. Who's a better X-Men who has more of a butt? Beast probably has a butt? Yeah, probably. Okay. I don't know which X-Men has the best butt. Maybe Nightcrawler? Probably Nightcrawler. If you have thoughts, get into touch with us at Tighten Up the Defense. So, I was talking a little bit about Steve Ditko, and that takes us into the second story in this issue, Don't Let the Sun Come Up on Me, Mm. the very small backup story, which is illustrated by Steve Ditko, which is weird. I keep forgetting he went back and worked on a freelance basis for Marvel in the 80s. What did you think of this story? I was baffled and mad. I think that is a completely fair reaction. If I didn't have some of the background that I have for this particular story, I think the sum of my reaction to it would be middle finger fart noise. (laughs) That is a classic hub response. But there are some odd extenuating circumstances that I don't think forgive this story, but I do think lend some context to it. Okay. So let's talk about what sucks about this story. (laughs) It's kind of a nothing of a story. Yeah. But I think more specifically than that, it is a combination of like inspiration porn Mm. and just one character yelling at another character. Have you tried not having a disability? Yep. And that's not a great look. No, it's so terrible, and it goes back and forth in that vein. This story could have been four panels, probably, and it would have gotten the exact same message across, and instead I got treated to increasingly fevered images of characters going, I have a disability, but you could try to not! Yeah, it was also kind of confusing just from the art, I had to reread it a couple of times before I noticed that the character is a child. Mm. I thought she was just a lady, partly from the way that she was dressed. And there are definitely indicators that it is supposed to be a child in the way that she is described and the way that Nighthawk talks to her. Mm -hmm. But a lot of those indicators are blurred because it's comic books in the 80s. And I could also see. Nighthawk talking to a woman in really (laughs) condescending and belittling terms and calling because he calls her like little lady and honey and stuff. And I was like, he could be saying that to anybody. He would say that to Valkyrie. She'd hit him with a sword, I like to think, but he would say it. Oh, yeah. I also was baffled by the fact that this small child was dressed like a grandmother. Yeah, and she's wearing like a skirt suit. And has like a, like a power bob haircut. Yes, 100%. And also strong brow game. Mm-hmm. Also, doesn't really make sense, or at least I wish it didn't make sense, that a superhero would just be flying around the city and decide that he's mad, so he's gonna shoot a building with his lasers. I know. And it's his fault that this happens to this child, correct? Yes, yes. His act of heroism is trying to partially mitigate him nearly committing negligent homicide. And the story treats this as important and as though he learned a valuable lesson that 
he should face any repercussions for this? Yeah, kinda. Okay, fair enough. Just checking. Yeah. So those are the primary problems that I have with this story, is that, you know, it sucks on all of those levels. And the background for this issue doesn't make those things suck any less, but I think it does make it a little bit more interesting. I think this is Mike Barr being really excited to work with Steve Ditko. One of Steve Ditko's most celebrated stories is from Amazing Spider-Man number 33. And in that comic book, it is six pages of Spider-Man being trapped under some rubble and really heavy lab equipment and having to try and summon all of his strength and overcome his feelings of inadequacy and like he doesn't deserve his powers and power through it so that he can lift this lab equipment that is toppled on top of him as water is cascading and pouring onto his face and he ends up finally doing it and getting the medicine that he can get to his Aunt May and saving her life. It is like a groundbreaking moment in comics for the way that it is paced out, and it is really, really well done by Steve Ditko. That sounds familiar to me, and the only reason that sounds familiar to me is because I think Dan Mulcairn brought it up in Smash Fiction as proof that Spider-Man is the best. That sounds very plausible. (laughs) That sequence is considered by a lot of people to be one of, if not the, defining Spider-Man moment, and really a high point in the series. I think what Mike Barr is going for in this issue is kind of a pastiche of that story, but starring Nighthawk, but with the twist that there is also a civilian in that position. So I think the takeaway that we're supposed to get is, you know, everyday people are also capable of acts of heroism like that and showing, look, you can be a hero too. Mm. Ultimately, for me at least, the story falls on its face, and it still ends up being Nighthawk yelling at a little girl to stop having a disability, and it works, which makes it worse. Yeah, that's a real bummer. But I think that is the message that it is going for. It is not particularly well executed, either in writing or art. Steve Ditko in the early 80s, especially working for mainstream comics, is not the artist that he was in the mid-60s. He is a very interesting character. He quit working on Spider-Man over creative differences with Stan Lee uh, a few issues after that. It was issue, I think, 38 in 1966, really at the height of Spider-Man's first blush of popularity. Wow. At the time, Steve Ditko was also just starting to get super into Ayn Rand. Ooh, no. Yeah, and that really did have a huge impact on his life and career. And I think hurt his career in a lot of ways. He would really try to infuse Ayn Rand's objectivist philosophy into his work in a way that didn't really work a lot of the time. It was during that period when he created for Charlton Comics, the line of heroes that was the Blue Beetle and I think Peacemaker, all of the characters that got turned into the Watchmen characters. And that was Alan Moore satirizing Steve Ditko's objectivist philosophy, specifically with Rorschach, who was based on the question. Man, comics is... I want to just take a comics history class. This is fucking fascinating. Well... 
Rorschach is kind of based on the question anyway. He's kind of an amalgam of the question and Steve Ditko's other character that was Mr. A, which was his self-published work where it was that was short for A is A. And he was a character who just wore a mask and there was no gray area between there is good, there is bad. You know the difference. Do good, don't do bad, or you will be punished. Wow. Um, and yeah, that was kind of the tone of a lot of his comic books. During the 80s, he really had trouble finding work. When this came out, he was doing more freelance work. And in this issue, he's inking his own stuff. And it's pretty good. A lot of it really is still like, this is some quality recognizable as Steve Ditko stuff. Some of the stuff he was turning in at that point when he was working for other people, uh -huh. he would really just do kind of hack work for major publishers and would concentrate all of his energy and work that he really cared about on his own self-published stuff, which would largely be these objectivist screeds. You can't see the faces I'm making, but they're very unhappy and stressed by this this weirdo in a basement doing this kind of thing. Yeah. That being said, it's also tough because Steve Ditko got hosed so badly. Like, he created Spider-Man and Doctor Strange. Yeah. And he was essentially a weirdo living in a basement. I don't think it was a basement. I think it was an apartment. Mm -hmm. But he certainly didn't experience the same wealth that Stan Lee did. He never got the credit that Stan Lee did. And there was a lot of back and forth between the two about that. Uh, with Doctor Strange, he didn't even really co-create the character. He came up with the character. That was one where it was definitely, hey, here's this character that I have an idea for. I'm going to write and draw a whole story about him. And then Stanley filled in some words. The character came to him fully formed. With Spider-Man, it was more like, hey, let's have a character named Spider-Man. That was kind of Stan Lee's contribution. And then everything else came from Steve Ditko or some combination of Ditko and Kirby, maybe. That one gets very convoluted. Also, Steve Ditko was, in his heyday, a fucking amazing artist. It, it is shocking to me that comics as a medium privileges the writer over the artist even though that is probably more than 50 percent of the the thing that makes it well maybe like 70 percent of the thing that makes it what it is is the fact that it's illustrated and i have a friend who's an illustrator and she's talked about the fact that being an illustrator of any kind rather than like a fine artist or something is shat upon hugely because mm -hmm. it's seen as for children and that if you're doing that with your artistic talent and you're not doing some sort of, I don't know, great work of art, some sort of painting or sculpture, that what are you fucking doing? And that's, uh, I'm like, your bread and butter is the fact that there's pictures. What the fuck is wrong with you? Yeah, and that attitude of artists being considered more or less disposable is part of why, by the 80s, this guy who really was one of the foundational artists of this medium was having a lot of trouble finding work. He ended up doing illustrations for, like, Transformers coloring books. Oh, wow. Um, and I, I think just a lot of work for hire stuff. He did some, like, Chuck Norris Karate Commando comics that I have. I was going to say, you've got to have that, don't you? That's amazing. Yeah, I've got a few of those. And so your heart goes out to him, but also he did end up just shooting himself in the foot 
because he wasn't putting the care into those work for higher projects that he was getting. I've seen pictures of some of the unfinished pencils that he's turned in for these work for hire projects. And this one is different. At this point, he's still doing his own inks. He is still putting a lot of care into this book. Some of the stuff I've seen him turn in for when he was working on Rom the Space Knight later on in his career, it's like line drawings. And then he just leaves it up for the inker to do the rest of the work. And so some of them end up great because he did still have a really strong sense of movement and fluidity and figure arrangement. And if he had an inker who was like, oh my God, I get to work with Steve Ditko, this is amazing. You get some really cool stuff, but then you get other inkers who are just like, this sucks, I'm getting paid to ink a comic book and I'm having to do 90% of the penciling as well. Oh, wow. Interestingly enough, I think Steve Ditko's legacy and impact on the Spider-Man character may have affected the first story in this book as well. Because, as I said, he was a more conservative man, and there is also the sliding timeline of comic books, mm-hmm. where, like, Spider-Man is, I think, technically younger than Nighthawk, but his character debuted first, which means that Spider-Man actually was a college student in comics that were published in the 60s. And consequently, there were a couple of instances where Spider-Man encountered campus protesters because it was the 60s. And they were, you'll be shocked to learn, not great. Uh, Yeah, I'm sad, but not surprised. Yeah, the first one was actually in Steve Ditko's last issue on Spider-Man, which was Spider-Man number 38. And Peter Parker just runs into some protesters and is really annoyed by them, and his friends think, oh, he's hanging out with those dirty protesters. Ah, yet another reason to hate that Peter Parker. He's no good. And Peter (laughs) Parker is like, oh, these lousy protesters. And the protesters are like, hey, man, do you want to come to our protest? If you do, we'll come to your protest later. And if you don't have anything that you're protesting, don't worry about it. We don't really care about this shit either. It's just something to do. We're protesting for protest's sake. Because... Caring about things is dumb. Oh my god, I'm so upset. So the art for that story was done by Ditko, but then Stan Lee filled in the words. And yeah, not great. And especially not great when, at the time, a lot of Marvel Comics readers were college students. And they were starting to market themselves more towards college students. And Stan Lee started getting invited to speak at more colleges at the time. And that was one of the things that he was taken to task for. And he was like, hey, we were just making some jokes. We didn't take it too seriously. But he kind of wanted another crack at it. So in Amazing Spider-Man number 51, there was another instance of Spider-Man encountering unrest on campus. And it's a big headline grabber. This would have happened right after the Columbia University protests where the students took the dean hostage. Mm over the university being officially aligned with a think tank that was working with the government and advising the military on the Vietnam War, and also that the university had plans to build a gymnasium on land that was a public park that bordered with Harlem, and there were rumors that this gymnasium was going to be racially segregated. And so the students were not very pleased with this, and there was a lot of protest, and it got national headlines. 
Now, in the comic books, Spider-Man was at the time a college student, and at 68, he was attending Empire State University, which is a made-up college. But they wanted to have similar issues. They did a very typical Marvel job of kind of both-sidersing it Ooh, with no. trying to seem vaguely liberal. <laughs> but not too liberal. No, no, no. Very much playing to the middle of the road, avoiding taking a stance, but appearing to seem hip by addressing the issue at all mm. type of thing. The most damning part of the issue, for me anyway, is as the students were protesting, the kingpin comes in and attacks the university. People think that the students are in league with the kingpin. The so Spider-Man looks over and sees that the protesters, who he knows are innocent, are being arrested. And he's like, well, the cops are arresting everybody. Good. That'll give everyone a chance to cool their heads. What? Because the students were wrong, too, because they weren't even listening to what the dean had to say. Oh, my God. There was just that whole idea of justice will prevail, and they're, they're safer being arrested for now, and this will all work itself out, because of course it will, because everybody <laughs> just wants justice. This is one of the things that I find so baffling and complex about comic books is that you don't receive an unaltered version of the character that is consistent from start to finish. You receive this weird kind of ebb and flow mishmash that has some core tenets that remain true, but all kinds of other things come and go and change as new writers and new artists arrive on the scene. And that is so different from any other art form the only character in literature i can think of that is like james fucking bond and and they've been very consistent about him he is a sociopath asshole like nobody's ever gone you know i think he's got a secret soft side like that's never <laughs> happened but with comics they're like well, here's here's a thing you didn't know about. Like, everybody wants to put their stamp on these characters, and that's amazing, <laughs> and I appreciate that. But boy, does it create some tangled, I mean, webs. Well, you are both a creator of and an appreciator of fan fiction. I am. That's all comic books is. In so many ways, it is, and I find that fascinating and also, like, it's corporate vetted fan fiction, <laughs> exactly. but it is fan fiction. And it's odd to me that there is not a recognition of that within the industry, really. Like, there is still so Boy. much derision for the idea of fan fiction, where it's just like, well, just because you got the Marvel logo on the front, unless this comic book is written by Steve Ditko and Stan Lee, it's fan fiction. Yeah, right? That's why I always appreciate... Okay, so the only comic I've read, and I haven't even read all of it, I'm I'm terrible about reading comics. Comics are hard to read, Hub. They don't appreciate... Okay, here's my little screed. Okay, I got through my degrees because I can skim. You can't skim mm -hmm. a fucking comic. There's everything is happening on every single panel of every page, and you have to look at all of it, and it's hard. I mean, it's worth it, but it's hard. No, I totally agree. Every panel can be so densely packed with information that if you miss one, it can completely change the meaning of an issue sometimes. 
doing the show has really changed the way I take notes because I think taking notes on comic books is kind of different than on other mediums. I've been doing it long enough that it's just there are things that you do intuitively, but it really is just a different kind of literacy. But I appreciate so much whenever I get to see in like Squirrel Girl, whenever they brought in characters that the Squirrel Girl writer and artist, they, you know, they didn't write these characters. They didn't write Loki and Thor. They didn't write Howard the Duck. They didn't write, you know, Craven the Hunters or whatever, but it was their version of these characters and it mm-hmm. it felt very fanficy and felt celebratory of that. I love whenever artists and writers get to play with characters that they don't typically use, but they are like, well, but we're going to borrow them and do all kinds of fun stuff with them. I love that. It's nice when there's the acknowledgement that that yes. is what is happening that that what that there is the here is my version of this character not here is this character and here is what he would do yes exactly i appreciate that and i think that's crucial in some ways in not breaking the original character but you know i'm not i'm not marvel i'm not dc i don't understand necessarily what they are trying to do with these you know billion dollar characters well, good news, Bob, because as near as I can tell, they don't either. Oh, make them kiss. That's the secret. Just make them all kiss and it's fine. Excellent plan. Put me in charge of it. And well, no, <laughs> then they're not going to be allowed to be released to children anymore. Never mind. Bob, there's a lot more to cover, but I think most of it's going to come up in the minutia. Are you ready to move into the minutia? Oh my god. I okay, I went to the gym today. I've never been more ready for the minutia. All right, let's do this. Rick, would you mind singing us in? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia. Like Cory eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. So, Megan Bob, what do you feel like starting off with? Um, Cory always starts off with sartorially speaking, I feel like. Um, okay. Best defender, worst defender. A bold move. Thanks. Although I do want to say, I love you, Corey. You're very sweet. I don't want to. I, this is not <laughs> me shitting on Corey. Corey, your hair is adorable. Man, when he was in eighth grade, he had the best mullet. Oh, my it God. It was so good. Was it like long or just full? It wasn't super long in the back, but it had the attending like curly on top, long in the back. It was pretty great. Have you noticed a resurgence of mullets in Portland lately? Yes. Okay, do you know what those are about? Not entirely. Okay, what is your theory? They seem to be less gender-specific than they used to be. Mm -hmm. There are a lot Mm -hmm. more uh, ladies with mullets these days, I've noticed. This is not the first time mullets have made a comeback in Portland. (laughs) I remember in the late 90s, the ironic mullet was the bane of many a social scene. And uh, these days, I think we're rolling into the post-ironic mullet to the point where there, I think, is some actual sincerity behind it, where people are just like, no, this is a fine way to look. The mullet actually, and I I have this fresh from my LGBTQ plus brethren, it is a signaling to other ladies who who might be down to to do sapphic things Ah. that that you are yourself into women interesting and it's a very useful haircut for that reason 
because it is not common. So I saw a, a fellow queer post on Twitter that they had seen some another person with a bigger mullet and felt like they were seeing a more majestic tiger in the wild than they themselves were. And we're like, I made eye contact, but they nodded at me. And I was like, oh, I've been accepted. <laughs> like, so that is what the mullet is about in the wild these days. And I, I mm. just wanted to share this breaking mullet news. I think I've told this story on the podcast before, but there was a party that I attended in, I think, the late 90s, when it would just have been an ironic mullet that a guy had. And the guy was getting on my nerves, and I was very drunk. <laughs> and he said some, I don't remember what he said, but what I said to him was, your head is a liar and your hair is that lie. Oh! And what he said to that was, Hub? And I was like, oh, it's you, person that I know. <laughs> oh my fucking god. Also, how are you such a fucking eloquent drunk? What the fuck is wrong with you that you're so good at this? Well, here's the trick. Okay. I only tell you about the times that I was eloquent. <laughs> you have a terrible sample size of these. Far more often, it was likely for me to just be like, you're dumb. I'm going to go stand over that way. Oh, my God. Oh, I love the sample size I have, though. It's so good. It's all gold. Thank you. But it is probably worth bearing in mind that there is a mountain of silt that I had to pan through to get that gold. So best defender, worst offender. Who do you have? I mean, I wanted to give best to Nighthawk because he's such a piece of shit and I want to redeem him somehow. Hub, I believe I can fix people. <laughs> this is my problem. <laughs> I can't fix Nighthawk. No amount of me making him kiss people is going to fix Nighthawk. Spider-Man is the best. Sadly, I think you're right. Yeah, Spider-Man I also had as the best defender in this. Not only is he not Nighthawk, but he also is a good friend. He yeah. listens without making the story about himself. He thinks to himself, oh, I know what Nighthawk's going through because it reminds me of what happened with my Uncle Ben, where I let a criminal go free and that person murdered my Uncle Ben. So I feel responsible for my uncle's death, which is also not at all the same thing as the manslaughter that yeah, that right. Nighthawk believes he has perpetrated. But it is difficult. I know I do this when somebody comes to me and has a problem. My default for demonstrating empathy is to say, oh, I went through something like this. Here's what happened to me. I know how that feels. I'm sorry you're going through that. But I try not to do that because I know that it kind of is recentering the story onto me. And that's not what that's about. And Spider-Man is able to do that. He thinks, okay, here's what happened. But what he does is he listens and offers sympathy and also takes a concrete, like, okay, well, here's something specific that I can do to help you right now. And so he's a good friend and good for him. Also, he beats up a lot of robots. Mm, my fanfic sense is tingling. And I feel like you can have something really juicy whenever both characters are dealing with their trauma at the same time. 
mm-hmm. that that can be very satisfying. And I mean, also in life to some extent. But yes, you are right. The science has borne out that it is better to validate the other person. But I think Spider-Man did a, did a very good job. Uh, so it's not just by default that he is the best defender. I mean, also, Spider-Man did save Kyle's life. So there is that. Too. Yeah. I mean, I don't know, maybe the worst now, but. No, good point. No, I don't want to say that, Nighthawk. I'm sure you can come around. Does Nighthawk ever get better in the future? Ah, I don't want to give any spoilers. Oh. There's some big Nighthawk shit that (gasps) is going to happen soon in The Defenders. Oh, my goodness. So I'll just leave that there with a dun-dun-dun. Yay! (laughs) That being said... Yeah, Nighthawk is the worst. He blew up a building and made it fall on a little girl who he then yelled at and told to stop having a disability. Yeah. I mean, it worked, but don't do that. Yeah. Bad job, Kyle. The whole, like, campus story, they were kind of running neck and neck. Kyle didn't do a terrible job in that. I did get the feeling when it's just the happy ending is, and then Mindy went off to a sanitarium. Oh, boy. I was like, this is giving me some big Jane Eyre vibes. Yeah. Is she going to move into Kyle's attic? Yeah. I had some real farm upstate feelings about it and was like, oh, God, is your dad still alive? Is this going to be a whole thing? Oh, geez. What kind of robots is his dad going to build? Man, his dad sucks. That's not an excuse, though, Kyle. No, do better, Kyle. Go to therapy, for fuck's sake. Not a ton of comic characters were going to therapy back then. (gasps) Do they go to therapy now? I mean, when they do, it's usually terrible therapy. And nine out of ten times, their therapist hypnotizes them into doing crime. Oh, no. But the next issue of this does feature Doc Sampson. And Doc Samson is a therapist. So, maybe. I just want to read about all the characters going to therapy and getting the help they need to be better and heal. There have been some attempts at that in comic books with varying degrees of success. But uh, there have been a lot of really rough examples of psychiatry in comic books. I can well imagine. Megan Bob, I think it's time for us to have a battle of the band names. Yay, you did the voice. I have no choice. I don't know how to use any effects. (laughs) You know what? Same. So in our last battle of the band names, we have a new champion. (gasps) Holy shit. I know. I Am the Thunder has finally been defeated. They are going to have to take their self-aware, braggadocious garage rock elsewhere because they have been dethroned by the alt-country traditional Irish music of the devout cowards. Oh, that's fun. So, in this issue, we are going to have to try to find a band name from the text of this comic book that we think can give the devout cowards a run for their money. What were you able to come up with, Bob? I had a couple, but, and I've admitted this to you before, I am for shit at music. So it's not that I don't like it. I do like it. I just don't have any sense of 
pursuing and discovering things. So I came up with a couple, but there's only one that I actually know what they are and what genre it is. Okay, cool. Let's talk them through. I don't know what genre mine are yet, but maybe we can figure it out as we go. Okay. Do you want me to start with the one where I do know, or the, do you want me to lead up to the one that I do know? Let's lead up to it. Okay. So there's Rod Serling's Imagination. Ooh, that sounds good. That almost sounds more like a sketch comedy group than it does. No. A, oh, my God, you're right. A band. But maybe they do improv music. Oh, no. Which is like, nope. it's like a jam band, but nope. a spoken word jam band. Cursed. Cursed. <laughs> I don't like it. I'm throwing that out. Look, the idea of a jam band alone is horrifying to me. But the mm. idea of a jam band where somebody's also like, I don't know, free word associating over it sounds like hell. <laughs> Can I get a chorus from the audience? Oh, no. <laughs> Please, I don't want to go to that show. Don't make me go to that show. Okay, who out there wants to name a bridge? All right, oh. just, just give me a bridge to chorus. <laughs> anything, anything. I love improv, but the floor is so low. Any kind of comedy, really. Seeing it done well is so good, and seeing it done poorly is the most uncomfortable experience. Yeah. Like, it's not just unpleasant, it is uncomfortable because you want to be able to do something to stop it. Yes, yes. Or to just, like, tell the person, no, no, it's okay, it's okay. Yeah. I'm sure you're a funny person, but this isn't working. Please stop doing it. Yeah. Tell me one of the ones that you came up with. Okay, so maybe a more traditional jam band, Beyond the Asphalt. Ooh, that, all right, that's a pretty good name. Maybe not jam band. Maybe they're more just like art rock, but like definitely highbrow, a lot of literary references in oh, there. Oh, I probably pretended to be into them whenever I was an undergrad. Oh, I would have to. I would have bought an album and then not opened it. <laughs> yeah. I have all these torturous years. Man, they're a bummer. Like, they're a good band. They remind me like Great Lakes Swimmers type shit. Like, okay, though, but what if? What if it was just like sad core covers of like 60s pop songs? That's not bad. I mean, I don't necessarily want to listen to it, but I want it to exist. I would check them out on Spotify. And yes. listen to a playlist based on it. I mean, I do listen to a lot of Lana Del Rey. I don't think I have heard a single one of their songs. Um, depends on how much you want to, like, cry about big feelings. Oh, okay. I don't. <laughs> there is one about being sad and gay, though. That's very good. Okay. But yeah, the rest of them are fine. Yeah, I've already got like five songs that make me cry within 30 seconds, so I don't need to expand that playlist. I had The Mechanoid Assemblage. Oh, that's very good. I'm not sure exactly what they are. I feel like maybe like... Uh, Is this some Daft Punk shit? Yeah, maybe. I can see them being like the backup house band in Tron, but I think that's a pretty solid name. I also have The Newsmongers. Oh, that's cute. That's really cute. Yeah, I feel like they're kind of like the bus boys, the the band that was like, I don't know, like almost 50s revival that was on the Ghostbusters soundtrack. I have also heard Chap Hop as the like 
if you're trying to revive like 1920s, 1930s ish music in a modern context, I could see Ooh. this being uh, a thing. I didn't realize we had gotten back to that. Yes. Is this being spearheaded by Brian Setzer and his orchestra? It is not. As far as I know, it is uh, now. This is my very limited exposure to it. Being spearheaded by the guy who sings Everything is Shit. Um, and uh, it's a song about how you don't need to make somebody feel better whenever they are feeling shit. You just need to validate it. Hmm. Interesting. Sounds like a real Spider-Man of a song. Yeah. What was your final band name? An Intelligent Looking Girl. Oh. Now, either This Is Riot Girl, which is totally possible, or <laughs> Hub, this will give you visceral memories and I don't know what kind they will be, a 90s alt-rock woman supergroup. Oh my. So it's all your Tori Amos, your Ani DeFranco, Natalie Merchant. Get, get Jewel in there. I don't know if that's too late. Alanis Morissette. Oh, wow. Who else? Who else is? You tell me about the 90s Portland scene of music. No, see, I was coming at it from like the Riot Girl perspective. And so I, I was mm -hmm. picturing a totally different lineup. But I think you're right as to what that would be. I think that is a very, very strong entry. I think we should go with that one. Oh, an intelligent looking girl. Yeah, it's all songs about the patriarchy. You can see it. Yeah. I'm writing that down. Would it have like Natalie Merchant or Lisa Loeb or like Ooh, would it either of them go. be affiliated? They would be like affiliated but not part of the group. They'd be like the grave diggers to an intelligent looking <laughs> girl's Wu-Tang. Oh, beautiful. All right. Well, we will put that up on the Twitter poll and see how they do against the devout cowards. Megan Bob, sartorially speaking, which elements of fashion in this issue did you want to concentrate on? Okay, there's two things that spoke to me. One, Mindy's cute murder boots <laughs> on page one. Just showing up in these kicky-ass little cowboy boots to do some fucking murdering. I was like, oh, man, what a vision. What a fucking vision for your aesthetic. You're like, I want to look, you know, murdery and fuckable. And I'm like, you know what? Go you, Robot Mindy. Robot Mindy looks pretty darn great. And the comic book draws attention to the fact that she's wearing a denim skirt in that as well. I know. Very rarely are the fashion choices actually enumerated by the captioning, but uh, you do get to see that here, and I appreciated that. It was also just a really nice introduction to the book, but as the shrieking, denim-skirted figure leaped from the assembled crowd of reporters so eloquently testifies, things aren't getting off to a very good start. Oh, it's a nice way to start a comic. Tell me one of yours. The main one that I noticed was the robo... <gasps> Do jocks. we have the same one? Oh my god, I bet we have it's the same the one. It's the V-neck sweater and red pants of the robot jock. What? And the other robot jock. Okay, why? They're wearing a V-neck and it also has a big V on the chest. Now, they are attending Greyburn University. Are they, okay. what is the V for? Is the V like for just the concept of varsity? 
<laughs> like, are they visiting students from Vanderbilt? Not particularly known for their athletic department, as near as I can tell. It's just such an odd and specific sweater. And it's not necessarily the best look, but it was the one that drew my attention the most. I think maybe they just like V-necks enough in their sweater that they're just like, I want everyone to know what kind of sweater this is. I'm going to put a big V on it. Or okay. possibly could be Laverne and from Laverne and Shirleying. And maybe his name is Vincent. But just that they both decided to do that, that they both decided to get dressed up that way in matching outfits for their robo blowjob, I thought was nice. <laughs> I mean, when you're going to do a robot blowjob, you want to be coordinated. They're aware of the fact that they have an audience. They made matching outfits. Good for them. I have enormous feelings in my heart for the <laughs> other blowjob couple. Mm. on page 11 one because the black guy with the armband who's very very swole but is looking at the jocks going like this is how you give a fucking <laughs> robo blowjob you fucking amateurs and is gonna like he's gonna do shit that none of the rest of us have ever heard of <laughs> i appreciate that but like from a style perspective one that little armband very cute i appreciate that Two, mm -hmm. his blowjobby, yeah, no, blowjobby, because he's the blowjobber. Language is complicated. With his red, I don't think it's a windbreaker. I think it's like, well, no, you're probably right. It probably is a windbreaker. In my heart, it's some sort of like suit jacket. It might be, because I don't know if they would have windbreakers if they are supposed to be from the late 60s. Mm. And big old collar. And the blue jeans and the pronounced belt buckle and the long shaggy hair that's kind of in his face. He's fucking dreamboat. I was like, oh, this guy, does he appear later? in the? He does not appear later in the comic. But I, he's a very hot robot. And I was like, my robo fucker feelings were coming out. <laughs> Excellent. Any other fashion you wanted to talk about? Just the fact that I really appreciated the sheer quantity of what I think of as Jim Henson facial hair. Hmm. Do you just mean a beard? <laughs> I mean, that's what you people call it. I mean, sure, I guess. I guess <laughs> if you want to be simplistic about it. But with the, like, slightly shaggy hair, it's... Mm. it's it's either Jesus Christ or Jim Henson. These are the only two people I will accept as the <laughs> standard bearers of the beard and shaggy hair look. I think that's a pretty good duo right there. <laughs> I know, right? What was your pie not made out of steel this issue? What words did you like best, much like you would like a pie if it were not made out of steel? It was the narrator actually saying, but anger and consciousness are soon lost in the sibilant hiss of sweet smelling gas. The riot police have arrived. I had the same one. That is oh just my some of language. Yeah, I had a backup, but that was my favorite piece of writing that was in this issue. The delayed reveal of mm -hmm. the riot police at the end. So fucking good. Also, man, this comic had feelings about the police that I was not prepared for a comic book in the 80s to have about the police. Mm -hmm. 
And I was kind of going, that's much more progressive than I was anticipating. I mean, it's set almost in the late 60s, mm-hmm. uh, coming out of the 60s, especially with an eye on violence on campus. Mm. I think the idea of Kent State was still looming larger in the public consciousness at that time. I know that was the National Guard, but still. The idea of riot cops cracking down on protesters, mm-hmm. I, I think, was more in the public consciousness at that point. And also, I wonder to what extent this issue is in dialogue with that previous Spider-Man comic book where he was dealing with protesters on campus. I wonder to what extent it was in reaction to that John Romita Stan Lee story from back then. It sounds like somebody's going to do a compare and contrast paper. <laughs> no, no, no. I am just going to hint at it. If I wanted to learn things, I wouldn't have dropped out of college. <laughs> I'm going to do a close reading paper. That's the only kind I feel comfortable with. Tough but fair. The backup that I had for my pie not made out of steel was the more lighthearted one, where Spider-Man is thinking to himself, that was the easy part. Now all I have to do is keep this tin-plated army at bay and save Kyle's tail before he becomes the base for a cream of good guy soup. Hub, I forgot that Spider-Man is quippy. I forgot that that's a thing about him and was like, he did a quip. I love that about him. And I also love that canonically, nobody thinks his quips are funny. I'm a fan. Megan, Bob, I've got a question I've got to ask you. Oh, no. (laughs) Behold! or be gone. In this issue, we learn that Mindy acquired her nostalgia bots, in part from the scientists at the Advanced Idea Mechanics, a group of borderline evil but not necessarily scientists who are solely concerned with the coulda and not the shoulda, Mm. and Latvian technology. That means that these hippie robots that she built are potentially doom bots. <gasps> they may all be hippies who have personalities based on Dr. Doom. Ooh. So my question to you, Megan Bob, is do you want to own a hippie doom bot? <laughs> I thought you were going to like lowball this question directly fucking at my face and say, do you want to fuck a robot? <laughs> That's the personality of Victor Von Doom. And I'd be like, yes, yes, I do. He sounds like an asshole I can try to fix. Okay, do I want to own one? Well, I mean, if you have the hippie Doom bot, you you can do what you will with it. I'm not going to question how you want to. I can bicentennial man that shit. Does Robin Williams fuck in that movie? Oh, hub. It is a plot point. Oh. I think Oliver Platt is the one who makes him a dick. Does he just whittle it? I don't think so. I think there's more to it than that. We don't ever see the dick, but, like, there's a part of it that's about the dick part. Huh. Eight out of ten. Maybe I'll have to see that movie. Report back. Text me immediately. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, do I want one? Only if it's an evil Ultron-style robot that, like, actually has sentience do I want one. Because if it's just, like, a regular robot, 
Man, I got a fucking blender and a vacuum cleaner. I don't need more shit cluttering up my goddamn house. Well, see, here's the thing about Doombots. Okay. Nine out of ten times, they don't know that they're robots and they think they're the real Doctor Doom. Mm. And they do try to take over. So there are some interesting possibilities there. But also, not necessarily going to be the best for your household. But you do get to watch a hippie version of Doctor Doom do shit. And that is kind of intriguing to me. Yeah. Like, Doom demands that you listen to my demo tape. <laughs> Doom wants to know if these apples are organic. <laughs> Doom wants to know why you didn't buy the Dr. Bronner's soap. <laughs> oh Doom demands that you tell him whether the color blue is the same to him as it is to you. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. Can it get high, though? Because that's a whole thing. I'm sure there is some kind of a circuitry work around where these robots can get high. I mean, you saw how they dress. <laughs> Man, you're really winning me over with this. I think, mm. I mean, it, it's dangerous. I might get murdered, but I think I am going to behold a uh, hippie doombot. You know what? You've won me over. I can have this hippie Dr. Doom boyfriend for a hot minute before he gives up on everything and takes over the, I don't know, the local Whole Foods and whatever. You know what? Fine. I'll do this. I'll, I'll go on this journey. Alright. Para beholds. Man. Is that a fanfic I have to write now? Fuck. Bob, what was your favorite sound effect this issue? Oh. Hands down, waka waka waka. Like, in a walk. It is a laser guitar with an apparent wah-wah pedal. What is there not to love about waka waka waka? Oh, in my mind, it was doing the waka 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 like Fozzie. Which I know oh. is an O. I know. Don't, don't <laughs> at me on Twitter. I know that Fozzie says waka waka, not waka waka. But... I was pleased by this Fozzie-sounding guitar. Mm. I saw it as a wah-wah pedal on the laser, That's which brilliant. I don't know exactly what it would do, but uh, it doesn't look like it's doing Nighthawk any favors, I'll tell you that much. Yeah. My backup was a pwacked, uh, which was just kind of a fun noise of, I think, a car hitting a tree, but doesn't really hold a candle to the waka-waka-waka. I mean, I like a baroom. There was a bar room, and I appreciated mm -hmm. that, but I mean... Well, and especially that it was a beer can that was exploding and making the noise bar room. <laughs> oh my god, I didn't even pick up on that! I don't think it was probably intentional, but I did enjoy that. But yeah, I mean, waka waka waka. Did you ever mix up the names Fozzie and Fonzie? I didn't, but I probably was not in a position to do so. I think that makes sense. I did have a big crush on Fozzie. Wait, Fozzie or Fonzie? Fozzie, the bear. Okay. I mean, he's adorable. He wears a hat and he makes people laugh, but he's bad at it. He's great. I always thought he, like, he's super cute until he takes off his hat, at which point that weird pointy head, and I can't figure out if he's bald. It, for some reason, he goes from being like kind of an adorable dude to looking kind of like Peter Boyle in a way that makes me a little uncomfortable. 
Okay, so that's your hang-up about fucking Fozzie. All right, I get it. It's one of several. (laughs) Megan, Bob, what was your favorite panel in this issue? Oh my god, Kyle kicking the fucking head. (laughs) He's just like, fuck you, robot head! And he kicks it so hard. He looks like fucking Pele or something. It is the best soccer kick I could imagine a non-soccer player giving and the head just going flying and he looks so indignant and there's not even a sound effect, which I suppose would have undercut some of the effect a little bit. But God, it was, it's so great. I mean, that and the double blowjobs, but like. Mm. Yeah, it, it's also, I mean, like it's daytime, so he's only as strong as one strong man and he is getting some pretty good mileage out of that kick. It's impressive. It's the most I liked him. He <laughs> was like, that's not bad. You've clearly been practicing. It also does kind of beg the question, to what extent was Spider-Man trying to kill that woman? <laughs> like, he didn't know that was a robot. And he yeah. threw a web around her head and then yanked as hard as he could. Yeah, the robot head came off, but I think a regular one probably would have, too. This is one of the issues that I have. See, this is probably why I read Squirrel Girl, because rarely is the answer violence. The answer is usually friendship. Mm. But I always have questions about the acting before thinking part of a lot of superhero comics, and then also the casual collateral damage. Yeah. I think the unspoken question that most comics seem to be trying to answer is what begets more violence? Uh, Because the answer is always violence in comic books. Has that stuff gotten better? Is there more understanding that you shouldn't just pull down a skyscraper because it would definitely kill this monster or something? Uh... I think to an extent, maybe marginally better, but stories in which that is not the answer are still very much the exception rather than the rule. No, see, this is why you need to give Blanche Devereaux superpowers. Everything is fixed, people. This is the answer that the Marvel Universe has been looking for. Okay, except for you would also be giving... Dorothy's Bornak superpowers, and I think there is not an insignificant amount of clobbering that Dorothy would do. This is true, but mostly of Stan, right? Oh man, Stan would be in so much trouble. (laughs) My favorite panel, I think, is one that I call Robo Hippie Takes Aim, Mm -hmm. and it is the Robo Hippie blasting his laser guitar at Kyle, which does make the waka 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 noise. But also, it is just a badass-looking scene. I guess you fire this laser guitar by strumming it, and it just looks really fucking cool. So fucking cool. Other than that, from the main story, I really liked on page 22, there's a picture of Kyle carrying Mindy in his arms before he takes her upstate to the farm. Yeah. Or up to his attic to, you know, Rochester her away. I don't love what's happening in that panel, but I think the panel is just really beautifully illustrated. It has just kind of a weird, almost like art deco look to it. Um, It's stylized in an interesting way that is different than most of the issue, and I think it really works well. And then from the backup story, 
there's a panel of just Kyle yelling that's on page 28 that is like the most Steve Ditko panel in this issue, I think. The way he draws eyeballs where they're bulging out and just the look of consternation on his face as he is saying, all the kids who laughed at you, show them you're just as strong as they are. Basically saying, you know, spite is more powerful than (laughs) physical limitations. Yeah, not a great sentiment, but uh, just a really nicely drawn panel. And the one that I think is the best illustrated Steve Ditko panel that I've seen in a while from the 80s anyway. I had one other favorite panel, and it's weirdly the one where they're in silhouette and it's Kyle and Spider-Man's hanging upside down and they're like kind of decompressing after everything's happened. It is the fact that Spider-Man just hangs around upside down for conversations, which is not a thing I knew about him. I mean, it was a thing I suspected about him. But also the fact that Kyle stands with his legs more than hips with distance apart, probably twice hips with distance apart, like he has the hugest balls in the universe, (laughs) and that's the only way he can comfortably accommodate them. Yeah, that does explain his posture and a lot of his actions. Oh my god. I was just like, of course you fucking stand like that even when no one can see you, really. (laughs) Well, before we move on, I did want to bring up one thing, at least briefly. Oh yes. Yeah! Bob, there are picket signs in this issue. There are so many picket signs. There are not only picket signs, there are razor-sharp steel-plated picket signs. The deadliest kind of message. What was your favorite picket sign that was in here? Ho, 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 chi min. Mmm. I had to look that up. It turns out that was an actual, fairly common picket sign in the late 60s. I don't know what it means. It's probably racist, isn't it? I mean, probably at least a little bit, but I don't think intentionally so. I know Ho Chi Minh was a North Vietnamese communist revolutionary who was, I think, pretty popular among certain counterculture types at the time. Certainly makes for a very eye-catching sign. Uh, When I saw it immediately, I was like, it's like a weird, like, are they saying he's Santa Claus? What's, What's going on there? And I... Honestly, the thing that came to mind immediately was from like Die Hard, where he writes, ho, 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 now I've got a machine gun. And I was like, oh, is that what he was referencing there? And no, of course he wasn't. But still, did make me think. I did enjoy that picket sign. I did also think there's probably more to the complexities of that particular political figure than I'm aware of. I am sure, yeah. So I didn't want to necessarily choose it as my favorite picket sign. And also, that's what I noticed on the cover, which is beautifully drawn, by the way. It is by an artist named, I believe, Michael Netzer. But there is a picket sign that someone is carrying that just says, stop everything. (laughs) Oh. And just, you know, if you only have time to make one sign, get it all out of the way right there. Just stop everything everything possibly making fun of hippie protesters but still a very efficient sign and i dug it i agree i totally didn't see that one that's fantastic well i'm 
doing a little bit of extrapolation that that's what it says, the everything I'm pretty sure about, but the only letters that you can see on the top part are S blank O, and then the rest of it is covered up either by Kyle's cape or the little text box that says screaming for Nighthawk's blood. But I feel pretty confident that it says stop everything. Hard agree. I'm 90% sure it says stop everything. What else could it possibly say? Shop for everything. All right. And then if you carry around to the back, it says like at, I don't know, Damula's Market Basket or something. Okay. All right. That's that's the other possibility. I'm still leaning with stop everything. But either way, pretty good sign. And uh, you know what? I used to work at Market Basket for a while. Not the greatest store, but good prices. So okay. that's not nothing. Now, Megan Bob, he may not be appearing in this issue, but I think we both still know that the Hulk rules. Mm-hmm. In this issue, what are the Hulk's rules? There were so many bad messages to take away in this one. <laughs> but I think the one I landed on that the Hulk would say, and, and I think the Hulk would feel this to some extent is it's okay to acknowledge your trauma, Hmm. which is a lot of what Kyle spends the time doing. And Spider-Man, although doing it internally is nonetheless sort of acknowledging that. And I think this is a real lesson to men in the eighties that it's okay to have an emotion. Not too many, I guess, but you know, and yeah, you can have one, one besides anger, cocaine fueled anger, and one other emotion. Yeah, cocaine fueled anger is the free space on this bingo card. Everybody gets that one, <laughs> but you get one uh, elective emotion. I signed up for pottery. Ooh, I had the Hulk's rule being one that he took away from the second story, but in reaction to it rather than the intended message. I had his rule being perseverance is not a panacea. Mm. I had him learning that by watching Kyle yell at a lady to stop having a disability. And I guess by lady, I keep forgetting. Just it really is partly the way she is dressed and partly the way she is illustrated in this. But I keep forgetting it is a child. But yeah, him yelling at a child. Have you tried not having a disability? Try harder. Um, And the Hulk sees that that's bullshit. And he knows that perseverance is not a panacea it doesn't cure everything well i have just one more question i gotta ask you bob Mm -hmm. in the year of our lord 1981 and the month of our lord january what wong doings was wong doing wong was in miami beach on january 7th to catch some sun he was hanging out with steve I think it was a case of not necessarily wanting Steve to come on this vacation, but Steve invited himself as Steve is wont to do. Mm -hmm. There was a ticket hawker for championship wrestling from Florida. Oh. And Wong was like, yeah, okay, okay, I'll go. So he got some cheap seats for a show that night at the convention center. And I have no idea if this is a good card or not. You tell me. Okay, Okay. this is from the fucking 80s. So. Okay, Hans Schroeder versus Mike Davis. Assassin number three versus Bubba Douglas. Superfly versus Vinnie Romeo. Mike Graham versus Bobby Jaggers. The Briscoe Brothers 
versus Chris Markov and Nikolai Volkov, which Nikolai Volkov is a name I've heard before. Mm -hmm. Dick Murdoch versus Dick Slater and uh, Bugsy McGraw versus Baron Von Raschke. Mm -hmm. Bugsy McGraw sounds like a nutcase. I'm not familiar with him. I know maybe five of the names you've said. Okay. So it was one of those nights. I, we've all had them. You start out kind of drunk and then you continually get drunker until you end up at somebody else's house and mm -hmm. you don't know that person, but you're like, they're cool. There's food. There's drink. You're like, oh, this is fine. I probably won't get murdered and <laughs> ended up at somebody's house in trailer park in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, which is about 46 minutes drive away, which is another thing that happens on those nights mm -hmm. and went to sleep and then woke up to the enticing aroma of Jamaican incense. Oh my. And we're like, where the fuck is that coming from? What, what is happening? Cause there's none in this house. Like we smoked all that shit. That's gone. <laughs> Open up the drawer to the trailer. There is weed scattered everywhere. And that is because there had been a weed plane flying overhead that had jettisoned some huge bales of weed. And one of them had gone through the roof of one of the trailers in this trailer park and had scattered bits of weed everywhere. And to quote an article reporting about it in the New York Times, Mr. Banta, whose trailer had been somewhat destroyed by this 100-pound weed bale, said, Oof. I had to chase two guys off my lawn this afternoon. They were on their hands and knees in my yard, picking up little pieces. I chased them off, but they came back. And that was Wong and Steve. And that oh. was what Wong was up to in January 1981. Oh, wow. That is very interesting. Glad to know that. That may be one thing that Wong was up to, but it wasn't the only thing that Wong was doing in January of 1981. The other thing that he was doing was... Looking for an understudy for Nighthawk. Oh. See, the events of this issue made Steve very concerned. And he was like, Wong, this Nighthawk, I, I just don't know if he's going to be able to stay with the team very long. He's having these legal troubles. He keeps getting kidnapped by robo-hippies. We should have a backup in case something happens to him. And Wong's like, oh, okay, I guess that kind of makes sense. I don't really know that we need a Kyle, but I'll see what I can do <laughs> to find a substitute. And so he kept bringing various people by Steve's sanctum sanctimonious and being like, is this what you're looking for? And at first he brings by Moon Knight because he's like, okay, so this guy, we've worked with him in the past. He gets stronger at night. He's a ripoff of Batman. Millionaire. He's Ticking a lot of the boxes, Steve's like, no, he doesn't have flappity wings, Wong. You know that's what I like in a Kyle. It's like, <laughs> well, what else do you like about Kyle? And Steve's like, mm, that's pretty much it. So Wong brings by Angel from the X-Men. It's like, well, how about this guy? And Steve's like, mm, no, I don't want to have him as a defender yet, but you're getting closer. And Wong's like, okay, fine. You know what? I think I know what you're going for. So he makes some phone calls. He arranges for a shipment from Northern Ireland oh. to come over. 
on January 22nd, and he unveils it in front of the Greenwich Village Sanctum Sanctimonious. And Steve is like, yes, Wong, this is a perfect substitute for Nighthawk. And it was a 1981 DeLorean that has gullwing doors. And Steve looked at it and he's like, yes, it has the flappity wings that I like. And, you know, it also is very solid, but doesn't work particularly well. (laughs) But... Very interesting design. Wong, it's perfect. If anything ever happens to Kyle, we will replace him with this DeLorean. Oh my god. And that is what Wong was doing in January of 1981. Oh, wow. Megan, Bob, thank you so much for joining me. I had a great time talking with you about this comic book. I had a delightful time. Thank you for holding my hand as I toddled through the zoo with you going, what's that? What's that? What's that? What's that, Mike? I enjoyed it greatly. Where can people find you or your work if you wish to be found? I can be found on Twitter at Megan Bobness. I don't tweet a whole lot, so mixed results there you can also find me in the smash fiction fan faction where i post a whole lot i'm sorry it's on facebook i'm so sorry it's on facebook as it turns out no one else has really mastered group technology in the way that facebook has but there are probably some financial and technological reasons for that you can also find my work on the next wrestling fan which is a podcast that i do with miles schneiderman about wrestling where i am the baby whose hand is being held as i learn about wrestling Hub has been on that, and he was wonderful, and you should definitely check out that episode if you haven't checked out any of the others. Um, I oh, believe that's shucks. episode 36. That show is a goddamn delight and got me Aww. interested in watching wrestling again, which I hadn't been for a very, very long time. You're welcome, so. Slash. I'm so very sorry. Thank you, and I forgive you. Thank you. The other thing that I do, which I know Hub has talked about, but I feel like Hub doesn't talk about it in glowing enough terms now that he's involved in it. Because, <laughs> and for I understand this. Look, we do a show about Skeletor gardening. I don't know how to tell you why you should listen to it other than the fact that it is the found family gentle goofs and kindness show that I wish had been on television whenever I was a child, but is now available to you in podcast form with the incomparable voice talents of many of our dear friends and also actual voice actors who also are some of our dear friends. I don't know what to tell you to make you check this out other than that if you want to be hugged gently by Merman, (laughs) this is the show that will give that to you. And you can find it at Garden Plots with Skeletor. It's a very, very good show. And I love writing on this show, and it has also given me the opportunity to become better friends with Megan Bob, which has also been a lovely experience. And uh, yeah, Garden Plots is a terrific show, and you should all listen to it. It's the show that allowed me to trap Hub into friendship. If you would like to get into touch with me and Corey, you can do so by reaching us at Tighten Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon, 97294. Or as this is the future, we can also be reached electronically, can you believe it, at ttwasteland at gmail.com. We're also up in other forms of the socials media. Just uh, hack into the mainframe and uh, zoom the web <laughs> Sodic cam 
shaft. Ooh. These are words. I, you're not wrong. Go to a place that the internet has and probably will be hanging out there. Twitter is where we do the Battle of the Band Names poll, so you'll be able to vote on that there. And in all of the other hellish nightmare escapes that the internet has to offer, we are represented in various forms. And hey, if you can't find us there, there's another place you can look, and that's deep inside your heart. Me and Corey are going to be in there. And you know what? We're having Megan Bob over too. Yay! Megan Bob, what are you doing in people's hearts this week? Um, I'm probably going to curl up on the couch and read an inscrutably bizarre romance novel. It might be about Kraken men. Cool. Don't ask questions about genitalia. But it could Shit. be about something else. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> Also, send send Hub mail. He has to literally drive to the post office to check that mailbox. Send him a postcard. If you have one of those machines that does like the stamped pennies where it rolls out a penny, send Hub one of those. He'd probably love it. Yeah, sure. You know what? Also, you get to feel subversive when you're doing that because not yeah. only have you destroyed currency, but you're sending it through the mail, which are two things you're not supposed to do to money. Ah! You can just take out a $100 bill and write like a little word bubble that says, I stink coming from Benjamin Franklin's <laughs> mouth. That'd show him. Huh? Huh? <laughs> you, you, can, you can make it more elaborate. You could be like, I am like a guest after three days or fish in that I stink. Oh, oh my God. That'd take old Benny F down a peg. And, you know, we could all have a good chuckle about that. <laughs> and then I'd have $100. But you'd mostly be showing the man. Oh, I hate oh, man. that man. That's what I'm going to be doing in people's heart. I'm going to be hating the man. Ooh. <laughs> the man's all like, Oh, I don't want you to send $100 to Hub. You have to have a pristine picture of Benjamin Franklin. He was my nanny. Because I'm old. Because I'm the man. Oh, I hate that, the man. Why don't you stick it to him by sending us $100? Oh, my God. Ben Franklin was such a saucy nanny. <laughs> I know. I mean, as far as founding fathers go, he oh, seems yeah. to be He's one the of the better ones shit. for sure. But uh, he really should have done a better job raising the man than that. Yeah, absolutely. If you would like to support the show, you can check us out at Patreon at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. If you do, you get access to all kinds of bonus material, including the monthly Howard the Duck podcast that I co-host with my wife, Lisa, called What the Duck, a podcast most foul but with a W because he's a duck. There is also the crossover NXT <laughs> Tighten Up the Defense Patreon episode that I did with Megan Bob about... Scooby-Doo and the WWE superstars teaming up to have an off-road monster truck race against a purported demon. You can check that out there. And there's a bunch of other video reviews of classic comic books. There's a lot of stuff up there on our Patreon that is exclusively available to our patrons. So uh, if you support us, that is up there for you. And thank you so much for your generosity. I support it and it's great. Oh, thanks, Bob. If you would like to support the show non-monetarily, uh, you can do that a bunch of different ways. You could leave us a review in a place that a review can be left. What's another way people could uh, support the show? Well, 
you could make a fake dating profile. Ooh. And then you could slowly, over the course of months, seduce somebody else with Hub and Corey quotes until they fall in love with the show and propose marriage to it, only to find <gasps> out that it's a podcast and they can be married to the podcast forever. Oh, sadly, you cannot marry a podcast in this state yet. Okay, well, it's only a matter of time. Come on. Yeah, come on. It's 2021, people. Yeah, everything else in reality is falling apart. Fucking let me marry a podcast. I mean, that will be what will define the 20s. Yeah. Finally, so. we'll be able to slap a stamp on this decade. It'll be the podcast marrying decade. Oh, man. Are you going to marry your own podcast or a different podcast? Oh, gosh. I know. It's a, look, I don't want to put that kind of pressure. It's a big commitment. And also, I am already married. There's, there's that, too. <laughs> I mean, so am I, but I'm very much like looking to to marry all these podcasts out there. Mm. I mean, I don't really have enough of a dowry for the podcast that I'd be marrying <gasps> oh, yet. No. I'm still trying to build it up. Um, my family has fallen upon hard times. <laughs> um, we still have our title, but we're no longer landed. Oh, my God. Is this whenever a giant podcast notices you at the village fate and sees how adorable you are and then decides to pursue you even though that this is a risk to their reputation and then you guys have some sort of torrid affair and you end up married to my brother my brother and me i mean that's always been the dream <laughs> we're so fucking stupid agreed anyway <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us, Megan Bob. This was awesome. And until next week. Waka, 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 waka. Why did you murder me, Kyle? Why? Bye. Bye. And they knew it. What do we got left? I am turning your show into so, like, tighten up the defense after dark. I'm sorry. That's quite all right. I mean, I suppose you knew what you were getting into. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I knew you were a, a horny scorpion when I offered to carry you across the river. <laughs>